this is Kara O'Cleaf, director of Fall for the Book, a literary arts nonprofit and festival based here at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. For more info on the 2019 festival and other programming we have coming up this spring, including our pop-up lit nights, visit our website, fallforthebook.org. We're pleased to be hosting this episode of Mason Out Loud and particularly excited about our guest, Liz Lenz. Her writing has appeared in the Huffington Post, the Washington Post, New York Times, Pacific Standard, and others. Lenz received her MFA in creative writing from Lesley University. She lives in Iowa with her two kids and two cats and is a contributing writer to the Columbia Journalism Review. She has taught classes on pitching and the art of the essay at the Iowa Writers' House, the Midwest Writing Conference, and Story Studio in Chicago. Her first book, Godland, a story of faith, loss, and renewal in middle America, will be out in August from Indiana University Press. The book sets out to discover the changing forces of faith and tradition in God's country. Part journalism, part memoir, Godland is a journey into the heart of a deeply divided America. Liz, welcome and thank you so much for coming out to chat with us today. Hey, thank you for having me. So you've been um, freelancing and working as a writer for over a decade. What has it been like building a career in writing and how have you seen uh, journalism in particular change over the course of your time as a writer? It's. It's been really hard. I, <laughs> to put it succinctly, I live in Iowa, and so much of what I do is from the center of the country, which is not the center of writing and journalism. And so, so I had a very slow start into writing and into journalism. For the longest time, I was uh, working as a copy editor at a marketing company and just feverishly sending pitches when I should have been working. They can't fire me anymore. Um, <laughs> so I can just admit it now. I, I think for the, the first three years of that, I was getting nothing and nothing and finally Finally, a couple of places published my writing, and then it just grew and grew and grew. And so my entrance into writing started really when I started working at a website called Your Tango, which is still around. And I wouldn't say it's like a hub for journalism excellence. And that I don't mean that to be a snub on them because that's not what they set out to do. It's like a very specific kind of place that's delightful, but it's like all about uh, relationships and advice. And, uh, and so I, you know, I took that kind of circuitous route into writing, but I think many writers do. I do see things changing um, that kind of like earnest heavy blogging that we used to do isn't done so much anymore and for good and for ill the essay it's harder i think now to you know sell an earnest essay and again that's good that's bad a lot of the places that used to buy them um, have been shuttered or have refocused so there there are some changes there's the same you know there's still some of the same but it is um i do think one of the biggest differences is that uh, you know there's there's not so much blogging anymore. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, a lot of your recent writing has focused on politics, um, what happened in the 2016 election, and then the Trump presidency as it's been for the first couple of years. And, and you often look at the way politics and religion intersect, but also at the way this presidency in particular has been reported on in the media. Mm-hmm. What, what have you noticed that, about the way that the Trump presidency is covered in the news? And is there anything you wish was being done differently? 
Yeah, I think the media fetishizes this Trump presidency. Look, it's good for clicks. Every time the president does something crazy, uh, people want to read about it. And he's always doing something crazy. He's a reality television president. And I do think there's this just kind of like hot and heavy coverage of him that I wish we would dial back for a second. Um, and I get it. Like, you know, ratings, we got to sell. Media is always struggling. But I think what we are losing is insight and analysis and thoughtful consideration of the way that his words and his coverage are really affecting the nation. And you brought up that I talk about like religion and I've been writing about politics. And that's because I think, especially for me personally, it's not just a game. Um, And for so many Americans, it's not just a game of political jockeying and political coverage, which I think is easy to forget if, like, you're in the media and that's your job. There's a lot of uh, pundits who kind of act this very cavalierly about, oh, well, this is happening now and isn't that so funny? And I think, you know, like, look at what the idiot said again. And I think one of the things, and this was uh, the foundation of my book, is um, Trump getting elected ruined my marriage. Trump getting elected has uh, flipped over my life in a really real and raw way. And I know that is the reality for so many people. So I think that that is, that's what I see and that what I wish would stop, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Have you noticed anyone, any journalists or publications that seem like they are doing a more effective job? Or is this kind of an across the board problem for everyone? <laughs> I, um, I don't know if there is an actual institutional outlet that gets it right all the time. And I say this as somebody who writes for a lot of institutional outlets, but I I believe that uh, companies are not human. You know, companies don't carry moral weight, but there are humans uh, who are employed by companies who are doing really, really, really good work. I think a lot of the investigation into Trump's finances that's being done out there uh, by the Washington Post is incredible and uh, needs to continue. And I know that, you know, the New Yorker had some really great stories into the the real estate holdings of the president. And so I think those are the things that I really like to see that real thoughtful, in-depth kind of digging. And I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of it in the coming months as the election gets uh, kicked into gear. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, One of the recent profiles that you did that got a lot of attention, um, there was a profile of Tucker Carlson you wrote in the Columbia Journalism Review. And that was an interesting piece because it's one of the pieces that, as you say, often this stuff isn't just political, it's personal as well. And that's a piece where you kind of brought yourself into the profile as well. But it was also a, a very extensively researched piece. And I wonder how a story like that, for you as a writer, how you shape it as you're going through the research process and figuring out where you want to put yourself in and if you want to put yourself in. Yeah, I came to writing, like I said, through this kind of uh, like personal blogging. Well, that's how my career started. And so my voice tends to be, it tends to weave the personal with the researched a little bit more. But that said, I don't just do it cavalierly. I always really, really, really think about 
do I belong in this piece? And uh, especially with the Tucker Carlson profile, I was researching it over the course of about seven months it took me. Then I was working on some other things too. And I had just filed for divorce and was moving out. And like all these personal upheavals were happening while I was working on this piece. And so the, the arc of what I was going through felt very mirrored by the arc of the rhetoric that I was covering. And so there were times when it was just, it was really raw. And uh, I joked to the Columbia Journalism Review, they were going to have to pay for my therapy bill afterward. (laughs) But I think I, I really resisted putting it in. And part of the reason why it's in the, my personal story is in there is because I talked to Tucker Carlson about my personal story. I told him what was going on in my life. And I didn't go into that interview uh, planning on doing that. Actually, I was really consciously trying not too, because he's not the kind of person who you would really want to like confide in or trust with like intimate details about your life. Sure, and <laughs> um, and so I really didn't want to. But during the interview, which was just going nuts, like I would ask a question, and he would just go off on these crazy rants. But I really uh, had been told by all these people around him, no, no, he's a logical, thinking, smart person who's capable of like empathy, and I. I wasn't getting that from him in the in the interview so then I had this moment where I was like no let me tell you my story so that maybe you can see the impact of your words on like average Americans in the middle of the country and it didn't go well and uh, so I think the reason it ended up in there was because it was just the perfect it ended up being like the perfect encapsulation of the problem with that this kind of uh, cable punditry that he uh, espouses and embodies and a lot of the problems in media too. So I think the reason that came out was just because the contrast worked really well. Um, so, but yeah, shaping that piece was really hard and the first couple drafts didn't have that in it. And I had a, a very good friend who's a wonderful writer. Her name is Carrie Howley. She's uh, worth looking into. She's up for a National Magazine Award, but she looked over the piece and she was like, no, you have to put that in there. It's such good copy. So <laughs> that's how it happened. Yeah. It does work really well in the piece because, you know, you, you think about who Tucker Carlson's trying to reach, and it is these average Americans and people who live in middle America. Yeah. And to see him not respond to the things that you're saying about your life. Yeah. Was really, it was really telling in that piece. Well, it's funny because, you know, he likes to be the voice, you know, the Vox Populi. He wants to be the voice of the average American in the middle of the country, which I don't think I am the average American in the middle of the country, but he wants me to be the liberal media elite. And so it was just a weird inversion. He became the media elite, you know, while I'm the average person. And I think what I hoped was it showed it complicated the narrative of who this person in middle America is that we're supposed to be talking to because what we think of that person and the actual real lived life of that person is completely different so yeah yeah yeah. and another interesting thing in that piece is you kind of you include some things about 
the process of writing it and for example like his publicist calling and trying to, <laughs> essentially trying to give him the last word and clarifying things and and it was interesting to see how there were those attempts to kind of control the story you were writing too. Yeah, and that happens in a lot of stories. Um, in this instance, the uh, the publicist in question, who's not named and will not be named, but uh, has quite the reputation in the media for doing this. But this person never, you know, never put their comments off the record and then you know worked in this like really heavy-handed way and so that you know that that became part of the story the story was part of the story and um yeah i i think it is revelatory of the fox news machine and you know a lot of uh pr people do it to different extents but yes the the way that the stories are created and told is really interesting yeah I want to talk a little bit about uh, Godland, the, the book you have coming out later this year. It's a book that looks at um, faith and religion in middle America, and it's it's a community that you've been a part of for your whole life. Yeah. So was there anything about this community that you, that you must have known really well that did end up surprising you over the course of researching and writing the book? So I grew up um, evangelical in Texas. I was homeschooled. We did the jumpers. You know, that was like back when it was I'm very old. It was back when it was like, you know, not quite super legal, um, but not really illegal. So that, so that's the kind of faith community I came out of. Uh, so very conservative, very traditional, fundamentalist. And, um, and my family has changed a lot since then. And I left all that behind in college, but still very much a person of faith. So I was operating from that kind of foundation. What, the things that surprised me were um, were the conversations that I would say more liberal quote unquote churches are having uh, that I hadn't previously been aware of. I think especially uh, when we talk about religion in America, usually we mean white conservative uh, evangelical movements. Uh, but what was surprising to me was, first of all, how many people in America still earnestly believe in religion, the death of religion has been, you know, greatly exaggerated. And I think it still is so it's still a vital way that we shape our communities and our lives in the larger parts of America that we don't even realize. Um, but also what was so fascinating was, you know, these small very liberal congregations in the middle of these red states that are um, that are earnestly trying to be places of welcome where there is no welcome. Um, and so that was it was both heartening um, and you know there's some problems with it, but that was what did surprise me one the uh, the amount uh, that people still still believe in religion and in faith. And uh, but also the, the other side of it um, and that kind of pushback that's happening. And I think a lot of another thing that I kind of discovered that surprised me, and I don't really have the numbers on this, but it seemed like a lot of um, millennials, I am a millennial, but a lot of um, especially older millennials are returning back to this kind of liturgical tradition of faith but in a more politically progressive way, which was surprised me. 
could. Well, you, you know, you you talked about the kind of that perception of religion in, in America and the evangelical community being kind of like here's the white Christian mm-hmm. um, community that's associated with. Um, I guess with seeing with religion and politics. Growing up in a religious community, was that an issue for you throughout your life, or did it become more problematic in the years? You know, leading up to your decision to end up changing denominations. It sounds like in college, things kind of shifted. Yeah, I'm definitely in high school. I was done, um, and I think that any woman who talks a lot doesn't do well in a fundamentalist environment, and so that wasn't. I wasn't thriving, shall we say? And I would just like to caveat again: my family has changed a lot, and my parents have changed a lot, and they've changed in part because me and my siblings did not thrive with this ideology. And so, Lord love them, they have grown and changed, but not at that time. I'm the second oldest of eight, so it changed for a lot of my younger siblings, And at the, but at the time, yeah, I was really chafing against it. It was this kind of weird thing where, you know, I was saying things like, I'm gonna join the debate team and play tennis, and my parents were like, oh no, you're not. Like, that's the devil's work. And, <laughs> and then uh, there was one time they, right before, uh, college, they sent me to this like uh, camp. It's called Worldview Academy. It still exists, um, where it's basically like re. It's like trying to educate fundamentalist youth so that they don't get brainwashed by liberals in college. And I went to this camp, and like I'm pretty, like I'm pretty type A. I'm pretty good at following the rules. But like at that camp, I was like the rebel. I was the cool girl because I'd be like, "Oh yeah, you, you know, you, you don't like Charlotte Bronte? I like Charlotte Bronte." And people would be like, oh, "No, she said it aloud." And so like I after that experience, I was like, "Please, I want to be brainwashed, please." And I ended up going to this liberal Lutheran college I shouldn't even call it liberal and I was like yeah I'm done with religion and it was like all these beautiful thoughtful professors who were like well actually religion is really great and we believe in it and and I was like what no you're supposed to brainwash me out of it and they just wouldn't I really tried to get them to and they just I couldn't find a good atheist to, to you know yell at me for the life of me what instead I found were people who had these deep abiding relationships with religion and I want to say mystery because I don't always think it's about like a quote unquote God. It's about accessing mystery. And that really changed the way I thought of it. But I had a lot of family trauma during college. And what I ended up doing was getting married um, very young. And then um, and then through that marriage kind of fell back into Uh, the evangelical patterns but at the time I was thinking oh no we can come together and I think that's a lot of rhetoric we see now too I was like well if you know I disagree with people on these theological points 
and I don't believe in hell, you know, I think gay people are great, marry them all, all the time, you know, but like, but I was like, we can come together because we can unite around this issue, and that was not the case, and it took me a really long time to realize that was not the case, Um, and so that is a lot in the book, too, about how I think this idea of building bridges is really spurious and damaging because it really presumes only one side bends, only one body breaks over a divide while the other bodies trample over them. And, uh, you know, I think we need to be really careful. I don't know if I answered your question. I think I just rambled for forty-seven minutes. No, I think, minutes. I think, that, I think that was that was a really a really good good answer. Um, and and it sounds like a lot of what you do talk about in the book as well that that journey of of your uh, your your own faith journey as well. Yes, as what you found when you yeah, were researching. Yeah, so it's deeply deeply influential. And I think like as I grow and change as I hope all people grow and change until they die and then you can decompose and change um thank you for laughing um (laughs) but I think like every time I think I'm there I realize oh no there's this other thing that I think that's deeply influenced by the faith community that I grew up in so I have to like reevaluate and change and uh the process of getting free is really hard going clear it's tough (laughs) yeah so as you were researching this book there's um there's a bit of a narrative about mistrust of the media in small towns and in rural america oh yeah did that ever cause issues for you as you know you're going into these 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 different communities and you know being honest about the fact that you're researching a book yeah oh oh yes and not only am i a journalist i'm a single female journalist Mm -hmm. and I think my uh, and I think that was something that I I am white so there's that that helped Um, but yes being a single female journalist really really became apparent in such like real visceral ways I spent a week with these Baptist ministers in rural Illinois and they were very distrustful of me and I was very upfront like I asked there's this class run by a um, by an association in rural Illinois that's supposed to train uh, quote-unquote urban pastors to do rural ministry I put all that in air quotes because it's the the, the ideas and definitions are definitely in question but um, but I had you know I had reached out to them I had talked to them I had you know been very honest about who I was what my political beliefs were my motivation for writing the book and uh, and then I paid the fee to take the class you know so I wasn't even getting getting in for free like and I immediately identified myself to all my classmates and you know whenever they said turn off your recorder I turned off my recorder I gave everybody a fake name and yet I think that was the moment where the problems were articulated because I had felt them in other times and other situations but they were not as clearly articulated you know there were moments when my classmates were saying them like well you wouldn't understand you're a journalist or you don't get rural America because you're a journalist and I'm like I have lived here longer than you you know like and so there were just like there were these moments of like oh well you don't get it because you're the media and then that got wrapped in with my single mom's 
status with my you know, just being a woman alone status and there was another time where there's this whole like media trope of you know reporters going into a bar and talking to the average man about why he loves Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders or whatever and I was like I'm gonna try this like I want to do like I will give it a shot and it was a um very small town near the Iowa Nebraska border and I was just like I'm just gonna do this I'd been down there several times not in that town specifically but I I walked in and you know ordered my Bud Light the drink of the people um just it's whatever that's insulting to the people um but I uh but I you know so I was like okay let's talk and nobody would talk to me and then at some point the bartender who was a woman came over and she was like you know you should probably leave before the next group of guys comes in and it was this moment where I was like oh Oh, like, you know, my body in this space is a problem for me. And as I was walking out of the and I was just like, yep, you know what, lady to lady, I listen. I paid and I left. And as I was walking out, like the men in the bar who had like barely even looked at me in the eye, I could see all their stares reflected in the door right before I pushed it open. It was just this moment of just a real visceral um, understanding of whose bodies are allowed to bridge the divide. And when you do that kind of media that privileges your, or doesn't even critically examine your body in the space, if you just assume that because you, you walked into a bar and you were able to talk to a Trump supporter that now you understand something, you don't. You know, you need to re- really think about like who you are in that space and who you are talking to in that space and why. And I think that's another reason I get very personal because I think the stories that we are able to tell as writers and journalists are very much based upon who we are, our personal motivations, and the way our bodies appear in the world. Well, I want to end with uh, kind of hopefully a fun question. You cover a whole lot of different uh, fields in your writing, but do you have any particular dream interview, anyone you'd really love to talk to for a story in any of those fields? Yes. At the moment, I would love to write about John McAfee. He's the McAfee virus guy. Yeah. <laughs> he is, um, he seems I don't want to say insane because that's not the correct word for it. He seems off his nut. Like, and he's like, he has all these tweets about how he wants to, um, I don't know how to say this politely on a podcast, but he wants to uh, sleep with a whale in a sexual way. (laughs) Definitely would make for an interesting interview. And he like, I don't know, he's just like this rich man who like loves guns and money and he just seems like if I could follow him around there would be there would be wildness and whales and and maybe some buried treasure I don't know but like it would be it would be a journey that I would like to go on it would take a very brave writer to follow around a guy like that. I would probably die but it would be worth it and the Dateline special would be out of this world I would watch I would absolutely watch um, yeah well thank you so much for talking to us today uh, congratulations on the book thank um, again, you again it's out in August 
August. I'm really excited to see it out in the world. Um, and that is it for this episode of Mason Out Loud. You can find our other episodes and rate and review the show on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening and read on. Read on.